Amen. Have a seat. Oh, wow. Uh, it's good to worship uh, together. My name is Jesse, and uh, we're going to be in James chapter 2 today. If you want to follow along in your Bible, it'll be on the screens there. But before we do that, I just want to say a couple of things that are just, just really exciting to me. I've had uh, over the last week, definitely, but even in the last two weeks, some super encouraging uh, conversations. I've had uh, challenging conversations. I've had, I've had moments where uh, some of us are really wrestling with things, and some of us are really wanting to serve in a new way. Way. There's, there's a, a vibrancy in the conversation. I don't know if, if your last week has been like my last week, but it, it was full of opportunities to hear people's stories, uh, to, to hear where they're coming from, and to see what the Lord is doing in their life. And it's been, it's been really encouraging uh, to me. Uh, I, we have uh, currently something like 10 people, maybe more, that are ready to be baptized. Like they're just begging for the chance to be baptized. We had uh, uh, someone uh, recently, they, they wanted to be baptized, so they were baptized by their parents in their, in their yard. And, and the, just the desire to be baptized and to say it's time to say yes to the Lord, that's exciting to me. So I'm just going to announce right away uh, um, August 8th. I don't know how it's going to look just yet. I don't, I don't think we're going to do a baptism right here. Uh, maybe, maybe the elders will approve a big dunk tank and you can throw a ball. I don't know what we're going to do, but August 8th, we're going to be celebrating some baptisms. And uh, if, if that's you, if you're someone who, you know, you're not one of the 10 because I didn't know about it, but you're like, you know what? Uh, I've said yes to the Lord. I, I'm, I'm a believer in Jesus. I've just never taken that step uh, towards baptism. Uh, I would love to have a conversation with you. So you can, you can go on our website and kind of click the, the baptism thing, um, or you can just, you know, catch me after a while and, and we'll have a talk. But, but baptism, that's, that's super exciting. Um, we uh, worked over the last uh, two weeks or so. We're kind of gearing up for the fall, and uh, we're trying to, uh, on our website, carpentersway.com, we're trying to lower the fruit so it just answers a lot of easy questions. It should be easy to find answers to the questions. Uh, and, and something that we worked on and didn't announce yet is uh, for anybody who's ready to join Carpenter's Way, they're like, I'm ready to take Cornerstone, or I just want to make this my church home. Um, we, we've had it on the website for about six days now, didn't make it public. Uh, last night I was doing something, I saw that six of you uh, have already, like, you found the secret button, you clicked it, and you're like, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready to double down and call Carpenter's Way my home. Uh, that's exciting. Um, we're looking at having our next Cornerstone uh, either August 22nd or August 29th. I'm going to announce that uh, when we get there, but it's coming, and uh, that's, that's encouraging to me, um, and, and I'm, I'm thankful that folks are finding their home and their place to serve. Uh, community groups are coming soon. Uh, I had a goal. I wanted to say that we're going to have six in-person community groups in the fall. We're currently looking at seven that have already, like, we have seven leaders. We're ready to have community groups. Two of those leaders are looking for a home. Like, I'm willing to lead, but I can't, I can't lead this in my home. If you would like to be a home for one of those community groups, you say, hey, I don't, I don't really want to, to lead or teach or whatever a community group leader does, but I would, I'm, I'm happy to open my home and have a community group in my home, then maybe, maybe we can have a conversation. But we have seven, I can't do this with my hands, seven community groups that are ready to kick off this fall. And so that's going to be in September. Um, and and the, the, the last thing, I, I've had a ton of conversations of people like, okay, I've been in quarantine for the last 15 years. And, and I'm just, I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm a little cabin fevery, uh, and I'm ready to just serve. Like, what can I do? I will, I will mow the grass, I'll move some chairs, I'll do some stuff. The, the, the number of you that want to find your ministry, um, maybe we can do something to make that a little bit easier. So on our website, we have a little button. It's like, find my ministry. It's just a list of things that we don't even think that need to get done. If you're looking for a way to serve, 
and you can't think of a way to serve, you're just like, I'm raising my hand and I'm ready to do something, that might be a spot to go, or just find me and we can have a conversation. The, the number of robust conversations have been uh, incredible and encouraging. I'm just so thankful uh, to have them. Hopefully, uh, after last week's message, which the main point was be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, hopefully you have found that this week was also full of those conversations where you took that one beat, that one pause, and you heard something. You heard, you heard a version of the story. It was a version of the argument that you've had over and over and over again, but the moment you paused and heard, it got to this new level, um, and, and it unpacked. I, I don't know if I'm allowed to, to say this about James because I'm the one teaching through James, uh, but I didn't write it, so I guess I, I, guess I can't say it. Um, my job is to teach in a way that is encouraging to you and is equipping to you. That's, that's what I'm tasked to do. But I'm finding as I read James, like I'm really challenged by some of the things that I'm reading. I'm really challenged by the way that James looks at the world. I'm really challenged by how he thinks that our faith and our religion should be, should look. James thinks, as we've said before, that our religion uh, should be equipping us for the real world. And whatever expressions of religion we have, it's more than what happens in this room. It's more than this hour that you have set aside to worship through song, and it's more than this hour to open the word. Our religion should be equipping us for how we go about our day, how we go about living our family, how we go about um, how, we, how we do our jobs. Religion it seems to be a bad word in our community. Um, is for some reason, we say things like, and we know people, and they mean well, and, and there's some truth in the statement, but they say things that like, you know, my Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. My Christianity is a relationship with Jesus, not a religion. And they say that trying to emphasize that it's not about the things that I do, it's about my, my working relationship with Jesus. What I would say is, why does it have to be either or? Why can't, why can't it be both. Why can't we have a strong relationship with our Savior and commit ourselves to living a life that is, is religious in the good sense, or a religion that isn't useless, that James warns us against, but a religion that is pure and undefiled before God? So we've been working through James, and we've been looking at the series that we're calling Religious, and uh, we defined religion a couple of ways every week we've got together, so let's look at that together. That religion is a particular system of faith and worship. James, in the last chapter so far, and he'll continue through the rest of the book, is giving us a very particular system, a system that is in many ways different than maybe the, the, the system of Christianity that, that we experienced when we were children. Uh, it's a system in which maybe, uh, maybe the Christianity that you remember as a child wasn't wrong. Maybe it was perfect for 8-year-old self-you or 12-year-old self-you. But now you're in your 30s and your 12-year-old faith just isn't quite measuring up to the challenges of a 30-year-old or a 50-year-old or a 75-year-old. That the, the truth of Christianity is that when we pursue it, it kind of, our understanding of it grows with us. We, we step into faith, we step into salvation with a childlike faith um, that, that is maybe, for some of us, that, that we confessed Jesus when we were 10 or in elementary school. What we knew was just, it, it was blowing our mind. And now... Uh, if we're not careful, we've lived the last 20 years and we haven't grown in our faith. And what James is suggesting is that if we double down on this faith, this, this Christianity, this religion, uh, a particular system of faith and worship, we'll find that Christianity is big enough to grow with you from 10 to 20 and from 20 to 40 and from 40 to retirement and from retirement to your last days on your deathbed and you're looking at your loved ones and you're preparing your funeral, that Christianity is big enough and rich enough to sustain you and equip you for every level of life that we go through. Maybe 
if I, if I have to be honest with you, maybe sometimes when we talk about our own faith as having, like, I'm having a crisis of faith right now, uh, maybe, maybe it's not so much a crisis of faith as it is you're about to grow into that next phase, and your faith is about to grow. It's, it's, the faith that you had was, was childish, and it was good for the season, and it was right for the season, but you are now experiencing a different level of life, a different place in your walk with the Lord, and you're going to transition that faith. I think a lot of Christians, a lot of churches that, that I've, I've been in, that I've personally witnessed, um, I think the biggest problem isn't that they don't love Jesus, is that they love Jesus like they did 45 years ago, and they haven't grown <laughs> in what that looks like, and haven't seen that it, it challenges every step of the way. Oh, uh, and then the second thing we've said about religion is that it's a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. It's the thing that is the most important thing in your life. That's, that's one of the definitions. When, when James opens his letter and he says, count it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, it's not because the trials are small or the trials are easy. Yeah, the trials can be huge. The trials may even kill you, but the trials are going to show you what was most important in your life. Uh, we went to um, uh, a funeral. Some of you know that our, our friend Tim Dinslinger, he, w- he was an elder here, but, but he's gone. Uh, we were at his mother's uh, funeral uh, this, this past week. And as people spoke uh, at the funeral, what you hear are not, you know, a recounting of the last, you know, if there was an argument, the last argument or the last bad moment. What you hear are people telling stories about the most important things that they remember about their meme and about their mother. When, when, when we get to the end of life, or when we get to the hard times in life, what is true about us and what was always already true about us starts to become obvious to us, starts to become obvious to others. And James says that when we face trials of many kinds, um, the things that we ascribe supreme importance to become very obvious to us. But if we would make it a point to ascribe supreme importance to the pursuit of Jesus as our Lord and the pursuit of him transforming us, the pursuit of doing life the way that he says it, then we're better equipped for um, this world around us, this world that really hurts. Can we agree that this world is just uniquely gifted at hurting? Uh, and we, as individuals, are uniquely gifted at hurting each other. This week, um, we were in a staff meeting. Uh, we finished staff meeting as a church, and uh, Jason uh, Harris, our worship pastor you saw up here, um, he, he had to do something, and so he's, he's just, it, the meeting's over, uh, but, but he has his computer, and he goes to a broken website. Uh, it should have worked, but it didn't work. Um, I don't know if you know this. Uh, it used to, if you go to a broken website, uh, it just says, hey, this website's broken. Try something else. Now, uh, in the interest of, you know, delaying you and, and maybe just distracting you, um, sometimes you go to a broken website and they offer you a video game to play in your, so you're frustrated that your website didn't work, but here's a game to just kind of, you know, entertain you and uh, have, have some fun. And so uh, he, I hear the music play, and, and it, it is a version of Mario Brothers, but it's not Mario, it's just, it's just this game, right? And, and you have, it's not a controller in your hand, it's just a keyboard in your hand. And it's the first level of Mario Brothers that we've been talking about for weeks now, it's, but it's different, it's a different skin, different colors and stuff. And Jason has the whole keyboard in front of him, and he has to figure out how to make this little character move forward. And it takes a second, and then, okay, you figure that out. And then, and then you figure out the jump. And then by the end of this level, Jason is now equipped to beat whatever the version of Bowser is in that game. The, the, the buttons were confusing at first. Sometimes when we, when we first face Christianity, it's like, I don't know what to do with my hands. I don't know how to pray. Do I pray like this? You know, do I, but after you figure out the motions, after you figure out the moves, 
Christianity should be equipping you for every phase of life that you're going to face. And we got to see that lived out after our staff meeting, uh, which, was, which was fun. I never uh, got to see if I can get a better high score than you, Jason, so we'll have to figure that out later. And so let's look at James chapter 2. Um, if, if everything goes as planned, we'll, we'll finish chapter 2, uh, but we may, we may get delayed. He starts, he says, um, my brothers, now remember uh, who James is writing to? When he says my brothers, he's not, he's not writing to a group of people that he considers some may be lost, some may be saved, some may be Christians, some may be not. He's writing to a group of people that he expects are Christians. He's writing to the group of Christians that he said at the beginning are in the dispersion. Uh, and so there's this moment in early church history that all, the, all of Christianity was focused in the one city, Jerusalem, and then things got kind of hairy and they scattered everywhere. Um, and so James is writing to a group of Christians that have scattered away from their home, and they're trying to figure out how to do life in very different circumstances. And if you left Jerusalem and went to Samaria, your experience is different than if you left Jerusalem and went to, say, Egypt. Your experience would be different if, if you left Jerusalem and went to Ethiopia than it would be if you left Jerusalem and went to Jordan. Like, it, everywhere you went, just imagine the, the huge cultures change in, in every bit of it. And, and James, he writes this, the entire letter, uh, trying to prepare all of Christians for whatever various trials they may see in their different areas. And so he's writing to people that he, he considers saved, that he considers are followers of Jesus. And, he, and he's going to give us today in this chapter uh, two uh, kind of big life lessons. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The first thing he thinks is important is be careful not to show any partiality. Uh, interesting bit of trivia. I'll save you on Jeopardy if you ever find your way there. Um, how many times is the name Jesus mentioned in the book of James? The answer is twice, or what is twice if you're on Jeopardy? Uh, twice the name of, of Jesus is mentioned. Uh, this is Jesus, uh, James's big brother, uh, Jesus, and it's mentioned when he introduces himself. He says, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he says right here the second time, uh, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord, Jesus Christ. In, in our Lord, my big brother, Jesus Christ. The Lord of glory. My big brother is the Lord of glory. There, there are two things that, that I think are cautionary right here. One is James, who is staying in Jerusalem, seems to think it's an easy, slippery slope that as you travel and as you try to make your way and as you try to fit in, seems to think that it's really easy to begin showing partiality in those places that you try to fit in. Maybe, maybe that's your story. Maybe, maybe you know times that you went to church and there were moments where you, you tried to fit in and, and you showed partiality. Or maybe there were moments where you, you wished you fit in and there were others showing partiality around you and it just didn't fit. It's like, it like a square peg in a round hole. You just, you just didn't fit. James begins chapter 2 right here as like it seems pretty obvious to him that partiality is an easy, slippery slope to get into. Now, if you're a Christian in, in the dispersion, you would have scattered from where you were, from Jerusalem, the culture that you knew, and the family that you knew, and the safety net that you knew, and you would end up in these other places. And in these other places, you really want to feel secure, and you really want to feel safe. You want to have good job opportunities. You want, you want your family to be safe. And it might be, it might be that the temptation to show partiality uh, is so easy because you, you want to do it to kind of protect yourself. You want to do that to maybe surround yourself with, I need a group of friends as quick as I can. I feel lonely, and I need some friends. And so partiality kind of slips in. And, and he says here, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
What, what we're going to unpack as, as we see how he views it, but what we see is that calling Jesus Lord is antithetical to showing partiality. To call Jesus Lord means that, Jesus, I trust your way for doing things, and I trust that you have my best interests in mind, and I trust that you'll protect me and my family, and I trust that, that you are Lord. When we call Jesus Lord, we're, we're saying that we, we believe Jesus when he says, I will, I will not leave you and I will not forsake you, that, that we trust Jesus when he says those things. But when we show partiality to folks, when we, when we show partiality that shouldn't be there, and we'll look at that in a moment, um, what we're saying with our actions is, yes, I trusted you, Jesus, but just in case, I'm going to have this backup plan. I'm going to have a few friends, maybe a powerful friend who can rescue my family and make sure that I have a good job and make sure that I'm treated okay. I'm going to protect myself a little bit. But if Jesus is Lord, um, that means that everybody else is on equal footing. We're all looking for a savior. We're all needing rescuing from our own mistakes and our own sin. And whether we come to this with a whole bag full of sin that we really wish we didn't have, if we come with just one little problem, um, we're all in need of a rescue. And so if Jesus is our Lord, that means that there shouldn't be some of us that we esteem higher or lower than each other. Let's, let's unpack it some more. He, says, he gives this example. Imagine this, this moment. Like, uh, here, here in just a moment, just imagine the doors open and these two people walk in. It says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, like myself, super fine, comes into your assembly. Guys, that was like the sixth joke, and that's the first laugh. That is, that is not okay. Uh, okay. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, uh, there's not a problem with having a poor man and a rich man enter at the same time. It's this and that happens. He says, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. Here you go. Here's the good. I saved it for you. You sit here in the good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinct distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I love, I love how James puts that as a question, not as a statement. He's not, he's not like waving his fist at him. He's like, just ponder this with me. If, if, if two people come in, and just on the, on the onset of these two people coming in, you assume one is good for you to have around and the other one is dismissible, have you not become judges with evil thoughts? We have. But if Jesus is Lord, both of those men come in needing the same rescuer in the same amount of rescuing. If Jesus is Lord, those two men, no matter what their bank account looks like, is the same. Both of them have the same amount of value, and both of them are image bearers of God. Not one is more precious than the other. Have we not become judges with evil thoughts? Have we not then, he says in verse 4, have we not then made distinctions among ourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. I wonder if we could mix this up a little bit, because in America, just about all of us are rich. To, it's like different levels of rich. If you look at the whole world, um, it's like, are you 1% rich, or 99% rich, or you know, 5% rich? If you are an American citizen, the rest of the world looks at us like we're just the wealthiest group, and they're right. We, we, we have pretty good. Uh, we were talking about uh, vaccines, um, in which, which countries got the vaccine. America has, has developed inside of its borders three different vaccines to choose from. Three! There are countries that are begging for the first one, and we have three, because we have money, and we have wealth, and we have opportunity. So maybe Maybe the distinctions that we draw amongst ourselves aren't always on financial lines, and so this seems super foreign 
to us. Maybe the distinctions that we draw are on uh, kind of more like attitudinal lines. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe some of us draw distinctions between like which school we go to. Like, you know, that P&G Bulldog rivalry is pretty, pretty thick around here. Uh, did you grow up on the wrong side of the tracks? Some of you are like, yeah, well, I'm a bulldog, so I get to say what I want up here, and I can, I can do what I want. Did I get an amen on being a bulldog? I think I heard that. Uh, James, he, he, wants us, he wants us to be mindful for, for how we draw distinctions amongst ourselves. And, and if we look around and we see people that we think are better than us and people that we think are worse than us, then he would argue that we've, we've begun to draw distinctions amongst ourselves that the Lord Jesus did not draw. And in so doing, we've become those who have evil thoughts, judges with evil thoughts. This is true if, if someone comes in and, and we, don't, uh, we, don't, we don't see fit or see that it's necessary to acknowledge them, um, then we become judges with evil thoughts. But the, the flip is true, too. If we walk into a room and we look around and we think all of these people have it better than me, none of these people know the problems that I have, none of these people know the struggle I have when I go home, they will never accept me and they will never understand me. You also, in that moment, have made the same problem. You've drawn a distinction and you've become a judge with an evil thought. And that evil thought is that when God looks down at us, he thinks some of us are better than others of us. God doesn't care. God doesn't care what your job is. He doesn't care how much money you have. He doesn't care how nice you are or how, how your marriage is at home. He, want, he wants to benefit those things, but he doesn't raise you up or put you in different esteems based on that. And so if Jesus is Lord, there should be no distinctions amongst us. When we come together, um, we, we are all just trying to take the next step forward in following Jesus as Lord. He says... Um, in verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers. Listen to me. I love you guys. Listen. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? He says, isn't it obvious to you that when we read scripture, we see that God chooses like really low-level people in the society, and he raises them up? He says that he's promised uh, that there are heirs of the kingdom uh, that he's promised to those who love him. That's something that Jesus said. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. One of the great mysteries of the church is that for those of us who we haven't faced a struggle in a while, we haven't faced a hard moment in a while, we haven't lost a loved one in a while, we haven't faced a financial crisis or a job crisis in a while, for those of us that that is true, we benefit from seeing the faith of those who are suffering and those who are struggling. Those that James said at the beginning, that they're counting their trial of joy because they are standing steadfast. I, Jesse, benefit when I see you stand steadfast in a season that I didn't know if I could handle something like that. But when we come into a room like this, when we join each other in church and we draw distinctions amongst ourselves, either, either lowering ourselves you know, lower than everybody else or raising others up higher with higher esteem than they should have, we have become judges with evil thoughts and we're robbing each other of the benefit of seeing that growth. Because, because don't you know, uh, verse 5, that those who are poor in the world, uh, that God chose those uh, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Those of us who are struggling and those of us who are steadfast are rich in faith and we benefit as a body when we see that richness played out. And we chop our legs off whenever we dismiss people who are poor 
who are, who are low on the status level or who seem to have such an ignorant faith. Oh, you know, you just need to study more. Come on, don't you know better than that? Well, no, but, but it's okay. We're all, every one of us in this room, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, our goal today is to take one more step of obedience towards him. Some of us have taken more steps than others, but that's, we don't draw distinctions on that. If you're ready to take one step of obedience to Jesus, you're in the right place, and we will not draw any distinctions. But, but James seems to think that partiality is a, um, is a slippery slope, an easy slippery slope. It says in verse 6, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Imagine a scenario. You've just arrived in the new city that you're trying to make home because of the dispersion. You're a Christian, and you're in this new city. And you go and treat the rich man really nice because you want the job, and you want, you want to be taken care of in the city. And that rich man just bites you every time. That, that, that person that you're trying to impress just turns, and they, they, they bite you every time. And James is saying, isn't that the same group of people that they blaspheme your entire faith? This is easier to see with, uh, with, with kids. Uh, parents, you know this. You, there's this one person that your kid wants to impress. They, they, they change the way that they talk and act and dress because they want to impress that person. And you look at them and you say, you say to them, they're not going to be impressed. Why do, you, why do you cave to what these people want? Aren't those the same people that were just really, really mean to you? Yeah, but Ma, I just want to fit in. I just want to belong. James says we don't outgrow it. James says that it's a slippery slope all the way through adulthood. And if we bring it into the church, we have become judges with evil thoughts. Verse 8, he says, though, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. I love that James, um, at this stage of his faith, is now quoting his big brother. Jesus was asked, if someone tried to trick Jesus one time, like, Jesus, tell us what the, what the most important commandment is. And they're trying to trick him, it says. And Jesus says, well, the, the most important commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And James, he quotes Jesus, and he says, you know what? If you do that, if you love your neighbor as yourself, showing no distinction, you don't, you don't mark them higher than you, you don't mark them lower than you, you just love the person next to you. Flaws, warts, ugly parts, good parts, all of them. Just love them as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. There's no like wiggle room here. He says, he says we're sinners when we do that. When, when we raise people up higher than they should and we treat them different, or we believe that we're too low or we don't fit in and I'm not going to bring my full self here, we sin, we rob the people of God of that blessing. And then he goes on to explain his logic for that. He says, forever who keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable to all of it. For if, uh, if he uh, who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder, if you do commit adultery but do, uh, but, excuse me, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And so when James looks at it, he's like, God isn't trying to say, like, some sins are bigger than others. If, if we murder someone or we show uh, uh, partiality, we, we're doing life wrongly. And our religion, our faith that is causing that mode to come out in us is not helping us and is not, is not appropriate for the body of God. It says, so in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And at the end of it, he sees the gospel as it's played out in the body of people that mercy is better than judgment. Forgiveness beats judgment. Mercy beats judgment. That's something else that, that Jesus uh, said. I love, I love when, when we read this, when we remember that James is the little brother of Jesus, that he, he calls him Lord, and he decides to fashion his life after his Lord, the guy he grew up with. He decides to fashion his life, and, and he instructs others, hey, guys, remember what my brother said. Remember what, what Jesus said. Show mercy. Don't become judges with evil thoughts. So let's get to the second thing that James wants to say in this chapter. And this is probably the most kind of misunderstood piece of what he's going to say. Uh, I can't remember if it was John Luther or or, uh, uh, John Luther. There's nobody named John Luther. Uh, John Calvin or Martin Luther. Uh, I'm going to name my kid John Luther Lofton. That's happening. Uh, one of the two of them, uh, I, think, I think it was Martin Luther, um, read what we're about to read right now, misunderstood it, and said that shouldn't even be in the Bible. Get the whole book of James out. Uh, misunderstood how James saw works and how he, how he valued them. Um, I'm, I'm going to just tell you the, the conclusion. The conclusion is this. Um, if our faith, our religion is meaningful... You should see evidence of that in how you treat people and how you act and the things that you do. Let's read it uh, together. Verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What, what good is that? What, what, is that? what is that serving anybody? Can that faith save him? Question mark. Is that, is that the kind of faith that is saving faith? What good is it if someone says he has faith but doesn't have anything to do with it? It, doesn't, it hasn't done anything with that faith. Well, Jesse, uh, 32 years ago, this October, I gave my life to the Lord, and uh, that's it. I haven't done anything since. Okay, well, uh, has your faith in the Lord, like, changed the way you treated people? Nope. I prayed my prayer. I got my ticket out of hell. I'm going to be okay. What, what good is that? <laughs> I say it out loud, and you're laughing like, that's absolutely ridiculous. But, but I, I know people, and I know even a season in my own life that that reflected me. I, I remember a season in my life that, that like, I confessed Jesus as Lord, and then I went and did whatever I want, and I, you wouldn't even know that I was a Christian. I met someone at children's camp who remembered me in high school. It's like, wow, you're at camp. That's weird. They're like, do you, have you met Jesus? Do you know? I was like, I'm sorry. I, I should apologize for some things. Uh, you, maybe you need to remind me what I need to apologize for, but it, trust me, uh, I, I knew better. Just I didn't have any works. He says, he says, what good is that faith? Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, ima- imagine, imagine one of those uh, lower-level people that he mentioned above. They come in say, I just, I, just need some, I just need some help with uh, my bills, and uh, I don't have electricity. And I, I, need, I need some AC. It is hot as everything outside. Can we agree that, like, it's just, you know, it's really hot outside? And uh, AC would, would be kind of a life-saving device at this moment. This person comes and says, I just need some help with that. And we just, we look at them, oh, bless your heart. I'll pray about that for you. Now, you go on and get he says, what'd you do? What, what kind of faith sees a need and refuses to step in and do something? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
Jesus wasn't impressed by your fancy words. Uh, uh, we, we can do better. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If, if we don't see someone in a life and death situation and our heart doesn't break and our heart doesn't want to serve, um, James is questioning how strong our faith is and how useful our religion is in that moment. He says, but someone will say, and we know people who say these things, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. It's such a, uh, like a paradox that, that James wants to bring up. Show me your faith apart from your works. The first thing that someone would do to show the faith is a work. Now, what Paul will warn against, and what Martin Luther was really ticked off about in James writing this, is that James doesn't talk about the other side of the coin too much, but, but we also know people who they want to impress you by all the great things that they do, all the nice things that they do, and they think that somehow they're going to show God by how, how nice I was to that one cat in the tree and how much I helped my neighbor, that God is going to fall in love with me, the real me, um, and then I will be saved. I want to remind you the reason why this is a confusing passage it's because James isn't talking, he's not intending to talk to a group of some people are Christians and some people aren't. He's intending this to be to a room full of Christians, full of people who are already committed to following Jesus. He's not trying to teach them how to be saved. He's trying to teach them how to have a faith in a religion that is helpful, that is useful, and that is equipping. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. I, you know, I believe that, that God is everywhere and I can, I can worship him behind this tree fishing for that bass and uh, I, don't, I don't need church. I don't need, I don't need to do anything else. I, I believe that God is one. And he, he gets all like snarky. Uh, I don't know why he's getting snarky. He's, he's mad at somebody, I think. He says, even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe these things about God, and they, like, they, they twitch. They get fearful of it. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then if, if you're well-versed in Old Testament, these two stories that he brings up, are, they're going to resonate. If, if you don't know who Abraham is, you don't know who Rahab is, uh, I'm going to read through it, but, but bear with me uh, because I'll get to the conclusion at the end. And so he brings up Abraham and he brings up Rahab. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Um, the story of Abraham taking Isaac on the altar is at the very end, at the very last moment, God gives, he says, stop what you're doing, and he gives another sacrifice, another opportunity. And, and some of our faith, some of our Christianity, some of our brothers and sisters that we see around us, their faith would look something like, I really believe God would, would rescue my son, and never took the step out of the tent, and just, just sat there. But Abraham, his faith involved him putting one foot in front of another. Abraham's faith involved him going and grabbing the sticks. Abraham's faith involved him saying, son, I don't know what's going on. You're the promise. I trust God, but he's saying go here, and so I'm going to go. Abraham's faith was both a belief in what God said and a one foot in front of the other action. That's what, that's what Abraham's faith was. He says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. It's like, maybe we should, you know, Abraham had both. He believed things about God, but then his belief became actions that he put into action. And one step after another, he learned more about God, and then he's later called a friend of God. You see, verse 24, that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. 
And in the same way, he talks about Rahab. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? It's an Old Testament story, but she, she helps these messengers sneak out of the city before the people who wanted to capture them uh, captured them. Could you imagine uh, what the story would read like if Rahab was like, I just love your God so much. Um, let's just sit here and wait for the captors to come get you. Like, the story would, would be nothing. Her faith in the message that the messengers were giving included her, like, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you get out of here at, at a risk to herself. It would be nothing for them to arrest Rahab the prostitute for this action. And she chose, like, I believe your God is true. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith apart from works is dead. Again, he's not talking to non-Christians on how to be saved. He's talking to Christians about have a faith that is alive. We've come out of a long season of dryness and pain. Um, in the number of conversations I've had, it's probably somewhere in the 10 range uh, in the last week or two of people who've said, I just, I'm struggling with my faith right now, Jesse. I need some help. That's a really hard conversation because I'm talking to someone who has confessed Jesus as Lord, a bunch of people who have confessed Jesus as Lord, but have gone through a long, dry season where they're like, I just, I don't know anymore. I'm, I'm, I feel empty. I feel dry. I still believe in God and I still believe in Jesus. I just feel dry. Maybe, maybe another word for that is I feel dead. And so much of the last long while, Doing works, doing things that mean something, doing things that move the needle forward has been, been thwarted. It's been, I mean, there was a season not too long ago that we were just stuck in our house. We couldn't do much of anything. And so there weren't a lot of works to be done. But now on the back end of that, we've become a group of people, uh, myself included, that don't have that knee-jerk reaction where I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to jump in there and do something. It's a, it's a, it's a task. Like, I have to tell myself, no, Jesse, your faith says to do this thing. If I go a long season, if Jesse, if I go a long season, my faith in Jesus, without ever seeing a work come out of that, uh, I'm driven to do something, to serve, to help, to, to feed someone who's asking for help, then I'm going to report to you, whoever asks, like, hey, Jesse, how's your heart? I'm going to say, I feel dead. I feel, I feel, I believe in Jesus. He's still my hope. I just, I don't have that vibrancy I used to have. And James says, well... Just as a body apart from the spirit is dead, so is faith without works. We, we, we should be a serving group of people. Our faith should motivate us to help others and to equip others and to show up in their distress. Or as James said before, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Our faith should cause us to show up in someone else's affliction and visit them and to hear their story and to stop talking so much and to just listen. Our faith should put us in positions that we wouldn't go if it weren't for Jesus being Lord, but because Jesus is Lord, we're all on equal footing, and none of you is better than me, and none of you is worse than me. We are just trying to be obedient followers of Jesus. How can I show up in your affliction? And when I do that, faith plus works, my heart comes alive. I feel close to God, and I feel close to God's people. I'll tell you two uh, kind of cautionary stories. Uh, 
about five or six years ago, um, I'm, I'm driving down the road. I exit uh, at 365, you know, in front of Chick-fil-A, and I'm turning on, under the overpass, and there's a long line of people, uh, like a red light. And there's a guy, uh, he's, he's, he's there, he's panhandling, he's asking for money. And uh, I, don't, I don't always give everybody m- money. It's, it's not, it's, you know, sometimes I'm there to help, and if I have time to talk, I'll, I'll talk, I'll meet somebody that gets there. But in this moment, it was very unique. In this moment, I felt, I felt this very clear desire to give this man $10. It wasn't give this man some money and grab whatever you have. It was a clear desire to give him $10, and I happened to have a $10 bill right in my truck in this little spot that I keep cash. I don't keep it there anymore. Don't rob me. Uh, and, and there's this $10 bill, and there's this man who's asking for money and a clear desire in Jesse's heart to give this man $10. And I wrestled with it. The light's red. I'm wrestling with it. I'm like, $10? He's going to go drink it. He's going to go smoke it. He's going to go do something. I don't know what he's going to do with it. And I felt, I felt, you know, it wasn't audible, but I felt like, who cares? I'm just telling you what to do, Jesse. Give him $10. Light turns green. I pull up. And the light is green all the way through it. If it had turned red, I believe I probably would have wrestled with God another minute or two uh, and then given him the $10. But because the light was green, I wasn't really in the mood to do it anyway, and I felt embarrassed about the people behind me. I did not stop, and I did not give that man $10. I just drove through the green light. Maybe, maybe you can, like, oh, yeah, I feel that. I've done that. I just left. And I was just crushed. Like, I spent the next quarter mile, like, what am I doing? Am I even following Jesus anymore? And so I, I U-turn, like, past Starbucks a little bit. I U-turn. I'm going to go get, I'm like, I'm sorry. I should have given that $10. I'm going to pull over. I'm going to give that man $10. I have been gone 12 seconds. That dude is gone. I don't know if someone picked him up. I don't know if, like, he, like a bird picked him up and flew away. But I had one chance to give that guy $10. And I felt like I was supposed to. And I didn't. And a little twinge in my heart, just, oh, Wish I did. There's no end to the story where I find him and give him ten dollars. It just—it's always there. When I was in college, uh, there was—it uh, was in downtown Dallas, and uh, there's a big homeless community. And there's this guy uh, that I would see walking around. I found out later his name was Ronnie, and he—he uh, he was a guy who would walk around barefoot, and uh, he just—he was just always barefoot. And so one day I pull over uh, between classes. I was like, "Hey, man." Uh, can I get you some shoes? He's like, yeah, I just wish I had some shoes. And so I have, I have bigger feet than he has, but I had an f- extra pair of shoes in, my, in the truck of my car. I'd give Ronnie some shoes. And so I'd see Ronnie walking down downtown Dallas, and he would, he would uh, the toes on his shoes were curled up, but, like, he had shoes on, and he was walking. I'd stop, and I'd talk to him. And I was like, man, Ronnie, how, how you doing? He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm hungry. Can, can you help me with food? I'm like, yeah, I can help you. I felt, I felt in that moment, I felt like I should do something. So Ronnie and I, we went to Church's Chicken. We got a box of chicken. They weren't happy that I was there with Ronnie. They ran us out, but they gave me my chicken. And so now Ronnie and I need a place to eat. Ronnie goes, hey, I have a place that's like a block up the, up the way. You want to go to my place? Homeless guy, do I want to go to your place? Um, let me just go on record as saying I didn't have a good, like, safety sense. And so I was like, yeah, I'll go to your place, sure. And so I went to Ronnie's place. And Ronnie had found uh, an old abandoned uh, uh, dentist office that had like a hedge, uh, a literal hedge of protection. It was his only wall to protect him from whatever the world was going to do to him. He had like his tent. Uh, we sat down and we ate chicken. He offered me a hot beer, one of those tall ones, uh, Natty Light, as I recall, uh, that I turned down, I'm happy to say, uh, being 19 at the time. And, and uh, you know, you don't steal Ronnie's beer. And we talked, and I heard from Ronnie, uh, his story. We ate chicken, and he told me what his life was like before he was homeless. He told me uh, what homelessness felt like, which is weird. It's different than you would expect. Uh, 
And I heard a story. And my heart was alive. I did nothing to help Ronnie except give him chicken and shoes. I couldn't fix his homelessness. Soon he was gone. I don't know where he left or if he moved on. But there's this, that was 15 years ago, y'all. And I'm a better person from that moment. My heart was alive, and I knew in that moment he and I shared the same Lord. And it was a good, sweet moment. My faith, my heart was alive. James warns that faith without works is dead because our faith, our religion, the thing, our pursuit, it should be pointing us to things, and we should be doing things. Let me close with with just two uh, recaps. Uh, James warns us to be very careful that we not become judges with evil thoughts showing partiality. And he says that mercy is greater than judgment. There are going to be moments in here where we've let each other down. One of us let somebody else down. Someone didn't feel invited to the party. And, and it happens, and there's no easy fix except just to admit partiality is an easy, slippery slope that we all fall into. But we need to be very mindful that we ourselves individually do not become judges with evil thoughts, thinking this person is better than me and I don't belong, or this person is worse than me and I don't want them to belong here. We need to be mindful and on guard. Uh, Scripture all throughout tells us, guard your heart. It is our responsibility to guard our heart. And James warns us not to become judges with evil thoughts. Let's guard our heart that we not show partiality, and in so doing become judges with evil thoughts. The second thing is, that our faith, our religion, involves things to do. It involves a work. Faith without works is dead, and it's a useless religion, James says earlier. But if our religion is going to be useful to us and to our families and to others, man, we step in. We step in in affliction. We listen. We, we feel God's spirit call us to do things, and we choose obedience over disobedience. Otherwise, you get 15 seconds down the road, and, like, the opportunity vanishes for some reason. Uh, but our faith becomes alive and we become better equipped. And honestly, outside of just Christianity as a whole, we just become better human beings, right? Can we just agree that we'd just be better human beings if we did that? I'm going to pray, uh, and then you'll be dismissed. Is there a cue? Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll pray, and then you'll be dismissed. Father, uh, this morning we thank you for your word, and we thank you uh, specifically for the challenges that are embedded there. Father, I'm, I read this, and, and I just see, I see opportunity to, to serve you better. I see opportunity to trust you in more ways. I see opportunity to correct some things in my heart. And I pray, Father, that you would give me the courage to do so and the strength. I pray, Father, that you give us the courage to do so. I pray, Father, that you would protect Carpenter's Way from a heart of uh, partiality, a heart of cliques, a heart of judgment. Lord, that you would, you would keep us like we are. You keep us sweet and gentle. You keep us looking out for each other, and you would keep us um, looking for opportunities to jump into somebody else's story and to serve and to do good works in your name. Uh, Father, I pray that our faith would not be dead and that our hearts would be alive because you give us opportunity to serve, and we do so in obedience, in glad obedience to you because you're Lord and you don't show partiality. Help us to live that out well. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.